Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez and my guest today. I'm excited to have John Warrillow on the show. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. Good to be with you. Absolutely. Looking forward to this conversation. I'm excited about it. I've been a big fan of John's for many years. His book, Built to Sell, which we're going to chat about today, has always been one of my favorites. I'm holding it here as we speak. And so looking, really looking forward to this, whether you have an existing small business or even if you're planning to launch your first business, it's critical that you build your business ready to sell. Even if you currently have no plans to sell your business. And that's what we're going to chat about today on the episode. To receive more information about the Howard business, uh, just uh, including the links to the show notes page. And also, if you want to schedule a free consultation, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 772-837-5700. So let me tell you quickly about John Warrello. He's an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and the founder of the Value Builder System, which is a simple software tool that allows business owners to assess the sellability of their company. John has helped more than 55,000 business owners improve their company value by up to 71%. He's the author, as I mentioned, of Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. It's a must read for every business owner and was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. Magazine as one of the best business books of 2011. John followed it up with another book called The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry which was released in 2015 and has been translated into eight languages. And exciting, by the time you listen to this episode on January 12th, 2021, his latest book will be released, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. We'll, we'll touch on that just a, mo- just a bit. John will give us some highlights as to what we're going to see in that book. He is also the host of Built to Sell Radio. John has interviewed hundreds of founders about their exit. Forbes ranked John's podcast as one of the 10 best podcasts for business owners. I listened to it often, was just listening to his latest episode before we got on to record. Before founding the Value Builder System, John started and exited four companies. John lives in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So once again, John Warrillo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Henry. Good to be with you. I appreciate it. Appreciate your patience. Before we got started here, I had a little technical issue, but John has been most gracious. So thanks, John. But I'm going to dive right into it. I'm always curious as how you got to where you are. Obviously, I, I, I referred to the four businesses. When did you start your first business? Man, it was just out of university and I was itching to start a company and I went to work in radio, but on the side, I had this idea for a show, a little bit like your show where you interview entrepreneurs and different people. And so I pitched the show to the station and they said, no, no one will ever listen to it. So I left and and actually created this show called Today's Entrepreneur, where I interviewed a different entrepreneur every day, got it nationally syndicated up in Canada. And it sort of created my first business uh, from that you know, big, large enterprise companies said, you know, you're interviewing all these entrepreneurs. We need some help marketing to them. So we started providing research to large enterprise organizations who wanted to reach these entrepreneurs I was interviewing for the show. And it was long story short, uh, that business was acquired by a, a public company. And, and I wrote Built to Sell as a sort of inspiration for how do you turn a, an owner-operated company that's deeply dependent on the owner into, a, into a something that someone might want to buy one day. It's fascinating. So did you study business or entrepreneurship? 
I didn't. And it's one of my great regrets. You know, Henry, we talked about offline, your kids, I've got kids too. And I'm trying to, to coach them to not make the same mistake I did. I, I did not. I took arts at university and I, I, I really regret it to, to this day. I think it would have been so much better to pick a subject that was uh, something I was interested in. Uh, I was interested in business, but frankly, the school I wanted to go to, the, the grades you had to get to get into the business school <laughs> were just way beyond Way beyond my capability. So that's funny. Uh, but so where did this passion and, and interest in business? I mean, this is pretty serious. So at that age to think to do a show on business and here you were just a college graduate, that, that takes a lot of, you have to have been thinking about it for some time. It's funny. I've reflected on this a little bit. My dad was a corporate guy. He worked at a big company and did so for you know 30 years. And he used to come home around the dinner table. We would have great conversations. And he would always talk about uh, some of the small business owners that he worked with, some of these people that you know, you wouldn't pass on the street and think, oh, wow, well, how successful they are. But actually, you know, he would, he would show me and tell me about if you kind of unpack their businesses, how successful they were, how much money they were making, et cetera. And I guess I grew up a little bit envious almost. I think my dad uh, had a wonderful career and there was maybe a little pinch of envy that mm-hmm. he didn't have the same degree of freedom that some of these people that we would talk about at night had. Uh, he went actually, have you ever heard of the Entrepreneur of the Year, the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year program? Sure, absolutely, yep. So, so he w- the company that he worked for was a sponsor of that show, of that, ah, of that uh, award program. And he asked me to go, and I think I was in 11th grade, junior you know, high school year, and he asked me to go as his guest to this award ceremony. And up on stage, these phenomenal entrepreneurs who were being given the award for the best entrepreneur in the U.S., uh, I got to watch these guys take the stage and hear their stories. And I was just, I was captivated by what they were sharing and that the, the heartache and the, you know, the toil. And, and get, this goes back a lot of years. This goes back to the early nineties. So we're talking, you know, many, many years ago now, mm-hmm. but uh, I think I was captivated by their stories and the sacrifice. And, and so, yeah, that's uh, probably where it all started for me. Yeah. Fascinating. What does being your own boss now, what, what does it do for you? You know, I th- I think it allows me, and I think this is the the the, the promise of entrepreneurship is the freedom uh, to decide how I want to spend my day. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that I I, I sit on the beach all day. It, it, it is not the case. I get a lot of intrinsic value and a, a lot of intrinsic sort of enjoyment from the work itself. And so uh, so it's not like I'm sitting around doing nothing but I get to decide what to do. So if there's something that I don't want to do, a task that I, I'm not interested in doing, uh, you know, I built the current business value builder to a point where there's a bunch of people that I can sort of uh, get other people to do some of the work that I don't like doing, which allows me to do the stuff that I do like doing. And it, it just improves my quality of life, my sense of freedom to sort of express, I guess, myself you know, yeah. in an entrepreneurial kind of way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think that's, that's what drives so many of us. And and of course, what we're going to dive into here in a moment is you have built, you knew how to build or you learn how to build businesses that afford you that flexibility. Yeah? That's right. Yeah. All right. Um, why did you, why did you early on, it seems, go on the track of, I'm going to build a business, create some value and then sell it as opposed to, I think what some of us, you know, for whatever influences think, well, I'm supposed to build a business and keep it forever. 
Where did that mentality come from, uh, do you think? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I My first company was, I, I was really keen on culture. I wanted to build a company with great culture, a place where you could bring your dog to work. You know, everybody would go for beers on Thursday nights. Like it, I was really trying to create a culture. And over time, I started to feel like that wasn't being reciprocated. All the efforts mm-hmm. that I was making to try to create this amazing culture, people didn't really appreciate. And so at one point, we had a, a spate of of, of of a lot of people departing in a very short time. We had, I think, 20 employees at the time. I think we had eight or nine employees leave within the space of like three months. A key employee, our you know, general manager left and, and she took with her a lot of key employees. And I, I kind of decided to get divorced with the idea of culture. I got much more mercenary with the process of selling, of, of building a business. I, I do not subscribe to the idea that, you know, you should build a business with a great culture, that it should really all be about, you know, re- replacing your social life, uh, that, that you know, business is a thing. It shouldn't be your life. It, it is, I think, important to get right, but I don't need a company to replace what I have outside of my, 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 my business. And so I really just said, you know what, I, I'm not going to try to create some wonderful culture. I'm going to pay people well, I'm going to give them benefits, and I'm going to be clear about what their job is and how they can get to the next step. And, and, and that's it. And if and, and I and I just stepped away from the idea of, you know, my business as an extension of me. And that was really helpful. And when you make that decision that it's a thing, not your, 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 your own self, it's pretty quick. The bridge is pretty short to, okay, let me build this to maximize its value and sell it. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, as mercenary as that may sound, as, as sort of dirty and money grubbing as that may sound, that's the truth. I, I just decided that I'm not going to try to create uh, my business to be an extension of my personal life. I have never had anybody uh, tell it to me that way. And it, I so appreciate you saying it because I've, I've come to the same conclusion, but haven't been as articulate as you are about it. Uh, the, the way that I, and I learned this lesson with a particular business where we thought that being friends with the clients that we had was the key. And the problem is that at the end of the day, for them, just like it should be for us, this is a business relationship. And sure, we want to be friendly. Like you said, we want to treat everybody fairly and ethically and honestly. We want to compensate people to the best that we can. But at the end of the day, it's a business relationship, right? And it shouldn't, what you've articulated so well is it shouldn't be where, it shouldn't be an exclusive representation of who I am also. Um, and that's what I'm getting from what you're saying. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's just a, a different headspace. You know, there are people who view the role of business as almost like patriarchy. It's almost right, like they see right. themselves as the father figure. Their employees are, uh, you know, their, their children. Oftentimes they hire children. They feel incredibly responsible for them. And, and again, that's, that's, a, that's a noble way to run a business. It's just not my way to run a yeah. company. Yeah. Well, so and in my experience, when I've tried to do that and others that I've observed, it usually ends up being really disappointed to you if nobody else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because again, because you, you're thinking that it's one relationship, but it's not, right? 
Um, okay, so brilliantly said, let me move on then. What is it that we should be thinking about? The, the top question I want to start with here is, why do I need a, build, a business that, as you say, can thrive without me? I want to chat about that for a little bit. What, why do I need to focus on that? Even if I don't plan on selling my business, why does it need to thrive without me? I mean, that is the raw material, a company that can thrive without you for just about everything. It's the ultimate poker hand in the game of life, right? So if you can structure a company that doesn't require you to do all the work, um, you've got you know the, four, the, the, the Royal Flush or whatever it is in poker. I don't play enough to know. <laughs> but, but essentially, you can then grow it because there isn't a ceiling on its growth because every business reaches a bottleneck when the business owner runs out of hours in the day, right? So if it can thrive without you doing all the work, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of how big you can grow it. For a lot of people that are listening to that saying, I don't, I don't want to grow a really big business. Great. It also means that if you can structure it so that's not dependent on you, you can take amazing vacations mm -hmm. uh, because it's not dependent on you. Equally, you could cherry pick, as I described earlier, the kinds of projects that you want to do and, and do and delegate the rest because that gives people a tremendous amount of creative entrepreneurial kind of uh, sense of self-worth when they can do just the things they want. And then ultimately, when and if the timing is right for you, you can sell it uh, because it's not dependent on you. So the, the precursor giving you sort of all the options, if anything, Henry, and I know you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, I'd be curious to know uh, your sense of what the common denominator is. But what I've, what I've seen in, in a lot of the research that we've done is that the, the common denominator among all industries, all types of business owners, gender, age, ethnicity, et cetera, is the desire for freedom. It's that control that they're looking for, right? And so I think the ultimate way to get control and, and, and enjoy the freedom that entrepreneurship promises, frankly, uh, is to get it so that it can run without you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely what I see as well, John. I think the only thing that I would add to that is that what I see as a, as a result of then otherwise, you talk about, you know, avoid getting trapped. What I see is lots of small business owners where the business now consumes them and they end up with, as we say, a lower paying job than they had before with a heck of a lot more headaches, right? A lot more stress, no benefits, et cetera. You're absolutely right. And, and again, this can be a slippery slope because when you start off in business, you know, you think, oh man, like if I can just sell my time for a hundred dollars an hour, um, well, if I can sell 40 hours a week and they start to do the math and think, wow, that's a lot of money. But here's the thing. If you're selling time, eventually you feel like you're on a hamster wheel, right? Mm -hmm. Where essentially there, there's no more hours in the day you can sell. And so you reach this, this, this very low ceiling. And, and for some folks who want a job and a lifestyle, that's fine. But again, it can feel quite claustrophobic if you can never leave, if you can't take a vacation, have a sick day, choose to do a different project without the whole business coming crashing down. That's, a, that's the problem with selling your time. Yeah, no, agreed. Okay, if I'm looking at it, if I'm listening and I'm planning to start my first business, is there, is there one or two things that you tell people to think of from the start that puts you on the right path to being this type of business owner where you can thrive, where it can thrive without me? Yeah, it's really to reverse the classic mistake most of us make when we start businesses. And that is that we sell too many things mm. to too few people. 
And the most valuable companies, the ones that can thrive without the owners, give the owners the freedom they, they aspire for, do exactly the opposite. They sell just a few things to lots of people. So here's, and it happens pretty naturally. What happens is we win a client when we're, you know, in the early days, a lot of service business based business in particular, win their first client. And the client just looks in the whites of the eyes of the, of the supplier of you and, 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 and just sees how hard you're working, how passionate you are. And they start to ask you to do more and more things for them. Wow. You can supply X product. Well, why do you consider supplying Y product? Because they want to reward your passion. And over time, you end up selling lots and lots of things to this one customer or two or three customers. Ultimately, you've built a trap because you can't ever leave because the clients are deeply dependent on you and loyal to you personally. And again, for all the same reasons, you can't take a vacation, et cetera. The most valuable businesses say, no, what I want to do is do one thing better than anybody else. Pick one product, one service and go ahead and sell that to lots of people. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I interviewed a, a woman for the, for the latest book called Stephanie Breedlove. She built a company doing payroll for parents who have a nanny. Talk about a niche of a wow. niche of a niche, right? So like, think about it. You've, you've got parents who need a nanny. That's a niche. And, and she said, these guys need a payroll service because it's really clumsy to set up payroll service for one person because all the payroll providers, ADP paychecks, they want to do it for Ford and Procter and Gamble and get, you know, tens of thousands of seats, whereas none of them have much time for, you know, doing one person. So she said, we're going to do payroll for parents who have nannies to pay. And along the way, she got, you know, a few dozen customers and she reached a point at $300,000 in revenue where she couldn't get any bigger. She couldn't keep growing. She couldn't figure out how to grow. And, and so she had a bunch of coaches and consultants and advisors, you know, tell her to cross sell her existing customers, right? Mm -hmm. So they're buying payroll service. They're busy parents, two income family. They've got a disposable income. What else do they need? Well, they meet, you know, they need lawn care services and, 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 you know, <laughs> laundry service, you know, all these right. things that busy people need. And Breedlove to her credit said, no, we got into business to do one thing, which was payroll for parents who have nannies. I'm going to stick to my knitting. I'm just going to go out and find more parents who have nannies to pay. Well, flash forward 20 years later, she's got a $9 million business, wow. about 10,000 customers that she's doing payroll for. She goes to sell that business to care.com. Care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers in the US, put plug in your zip code. And it'll tell you who the care providers are in your local market. Well, they had 7 million subscribers. And so when they looked at Breedlove's company, 10,000 customers, they said, well, what if only 1% of our 7 million buy her payroll service? That's mm -hmm. 70,000 customers. It's a company seven times the size. Anyway, long story short, Breedlove sold care.com, this little $9 million business for $54 million. Jeez. It would never have happened had she taken the advice of nine out of 10 consultants who told her to cross sell her existing customers. You've heard it before. It's like oh, 10 sure. times easier, cheaper to cross. And cross selling can be a great way to build a lifestyle business. It can be an awful way to build a company that can thrive without you. Tremendous insight. So I'm curious though, what did get her over that hump then? Was it just more of a investment in reaching more of those same customers? What did get her over that? Do you recall? 
Yeah. So she focused on her onboarding experience. So I see. I see. In, so streamlining that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what, what the first step she, she took was to really nail the first call. And what that did is create raving fans. Her net promoter score uh, was like 80%, which is a way to measure your likelihood mm -hmm. that your customers are going to recommend you. That 80% meant that she, she basically triggered the flywheel of word of mouth. And once she got word of mouth, you know, busy parents, two-income families uh, who have nannies, they tend to hang out together. And, and it sort of streamlined, it, it sort of uh, snowballed from there. But she focused on what most of us do is, is we put the, the kind of junior salespeople or the junior customer service people on the, the inbound yeah. phone calls, right? Right. right? She did the opposite. She took her most senior person and put it on the inbound phone calls. And, and that was one of the ways she got the, the tremendous kind of positive buzz because the first experience they got when they called was amazing. Interesting. Brilliant. This is Henry Lopez with a brief pause to share a special offer from our show sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. The new year is here and marks a fresh start for your small business. Whether you're shifting business hours or hiring more remote employees, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. And getting started with LinkedIn Jobs is easier than ever. I really appreciate the new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. You can post a job with targeting screening questions to help you quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. I also like that I can do all of this from my mobile device no matter where I may be. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. Visit linkedin.com slash how to get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash how to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, let me, uh, a few questions on the book. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I'm going to dive into Built to Sell, which I've read multiple times and in preparing for it. I, I love the book because it's the, it's the approach of telling a story. It's a fictional story, but based on the things that really happened, this guy, Alex Stapleton, and his experience with selling the business and the mentor that gives him these guidance. The mentor's name is, is Ted, and he has these tips, and you lay them out. I think they're 10 or so tips or eight or nine tips. Um, a few that, that stand out, especially in what we've been talking about, is don't be, or one of them is don't become synonymous with your company. And so I know that's kind of reiterating what we've said, but, but that's such a critical thing. And one of the things I wanted to talk about when we were first talking about this is that I think sometimes it's our ego that gets in the way. It's almost like we have an opportunity here to fuel and make ourselves feel important because, oh, everybody has to talk to Henry to make a decision. Do you see some of that? And how do you help people kind of let that go a little bit? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right, and and ego and discipline, I think, are are kind of the yin and yang or the opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, because there is something very indulgent by being at the epicenter of your business, right? All the customers' employees want to deal with you. It can feel very gratifying to solve a customer's problem, and and you get a little adrenaline boost when and an ego 
jump when you feel like you've helped someone out. And all that is, is a very tantalizing, but also dangerous sort of uh, fuel to run on because of course the business then becomes too dependent on you. The opposite is discipline, right? Where you're like, like Stephanie Breedlove. No, we want to do one thing better than anybody else. And so, yeah, I think it's a challenge. One of the secrets to making sure your company is not synonymous with you personally is making sure you brand the products that you have. And that, that holds true. Even if you've named your company like after yourself, um, you know, Lopez Trucking, as an example, that's, that's, that's okay. Lots of companies are named after their founder or the founder's name. But what they've done is somehow migrated the brand equity they have in the human being and, and translated into a product name. So like, I'll give you an example. Like if we think about Johnson & Johnson, well, the, those are two brothers that founded that company. And yet we still buy the products and we actually accrue more brand equity to the products. Things like Band-Aid uh, are the products of that company. And so again, if you have a business that's your surname in the company name, that's okay. What you want to do, I think, is invest in products. And even if it's a service, I think you want to productize your service, make whatever it is that you offer in the way of a service, look and feel like a product. Again, that that starts to divorce you personally yeah. from the, uh, the company itself. That makes sense. But, but where I struggle with that, John, is that what I know does work also when we're small is to put yourself out there because you're personalizing it I, I, you know, I can pretend to be bigger than I am, but people can read through that. And so I always recommend to my clients, especially in the services, don't, don't try to hide behind the we, but, but actually put yourself out there so that people can connect with you. How do, do you, don't, do you not think that's a good idea or am I confusing the two things? No, I think, I think it's fine to use your own personal brand equity, your own, your own personal you know, brand to, to build your company. I mean, it's worked well for Elon Musk at Tesla. He's doing pretty well <laughs> these days. And yet his name is synonymous with the company. What I think Musk has done tremendously well is built a tremendous product line, right? So there's great equity in the name Tesla. Tesla there's great yeah. equity in a Model 3 and a Model X, a Model Y, et cetera. And so he's he's still in the front of the company. He's still leading the way, leading the charge and very much kind of a, vo a vocal uh, cheerleader for the business. But, but he has built brands underneath it. Where I think we run into trouble is if we say, you know, John Smith window cleaning, and I can offer you the window cleaning service. What that does is it genericizes mm -hmm. the service and allows an apples to apples comparison. So all of a sudden you say, well, I, you know, I, I charge you know, $18 an hour to, to clean windows. And, and they, they turn around and say, well, I've got, you know, Mary Smith's window cleaning services and she only charges $15 an hour. And, and so you're genericizing and inviting competition. Okay. Whereas if you say you've got the, uh, you know, the 2,400 square foot shiny home solution, <laughs> that's a yeah. terrible productized no, service, but saying. you know what I'm getting at. The, yeah, I've got the, the platinum cleaning system and that's, yeah, the that exactly. Things, yeah. yeah. The 12 hour cleaning system or the, the 365 day a year, cleaning solution or whatever, naming it, branding, it starts to get separate you personally and, and just allows you to, 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 to not necessarily fall into competing with. And that's, I'm using window cleaning as a silly, relatively simplistic service, but it, it, it holds true for architects and graphic designers and management consultants, all of which tend to say and show up at a cocktail party and say, yeah, I'm a graphic designer. Well, immediately you've invited 
comparison and mm-hmm. commoditize your service. Yeah. And that's what I think we need to avoid. Okay, that makes sense. The other, the other thing that stood out uh, of, all, of all these TED's tips is the one, don't be afraid to say no to projects. And the reason I highlighted that one, the don't be afraid to say no, is that's hard to say when you're starting out or you're, you need that business or you know, you're struggling and so you'll take whatever comes your way. How, how do I try to manage that? Yeah, know that the more you say no, the more word of mouth you will create. Let me ask you a question. I mean, if you think about it, um, like when was the last time you made a hearty referral? Uh, I'd be curious, Henry, in your own life, it, it can be a personal example or, or professional example where but when you went out of your way to refer someone or something, mm-hmm. can you think of in the last sort of month or two, you've, you've said, you know, you should hire this guy to do this. Yeah, because I, I see where you're going with it now. It was because that person, they were specialized. They did something, one thing extremely well. They were the best at this thing. And I think if we all ask ourselves in our own personal lives, like when's the last time you referred a generic window cleaner, a generic accountant? Probably not very often. Mm-hmm. But if you know, like for example, in my life, I know the world's greatest, in my view, speaker coach. He teaches people how to better communicate in a speech. His name is Trevor Curry, Podium Consulting. I refer to him and reference him all the time because he's not just a marketing guy or a communications consultant. He's narrowed down to being, I help speakers, professional speakers in this case, deliver their speeches. Um, I, oh, another, another guy named William based in Sydney, Australia. He is the world's guru on Facebook advertising. Mm-hmm. Not just a generic marketing agency, which I could name off a hundred of them, but I would never refer. But William happens to be a global expert on buying Facebook advertising. That's what I'm referring to. So yeah, it can be very tempting, especially in the case of a pandemic where you know um, we want more business, not less. And we and we think, you know we can't. You know, there's that old expression, beggars can't be choosers. I, I think as much as you can be a specialist, turn away work that doesn't meet within your 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 specific four walls of what you said you were set out to set out to do, because I think it makes you ultimately more referable. It makes your company more valuable. And I think you create that sort of beautiful domino effect of word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I can see as you as you're making that example, rarely do I say, oh, go to John, he's good at everything. It's usually, right. oh, go to John. He's really good at helping small business owners with their taxes. You know, like yeah. you're saying, that's usually who we refer, and that's a good way to look at it. All right, let's move forward kind of in, in the thought process to the, this big question that always stands out for me, and I've been in this situation myself, that is, when is the right time to sell my business? That's, I think, a huge one that often we get paralyzed by. And I think for me, what it's been, John, is almost like this, well, am I, am I, should I keep it and keep making money or is this the right time? Do I take the chips off the table? What are your thoughts there? We talk about something called the freedom point a lot. And, and what that is, is a point where the after-tax pro- proceeds of selling your company would create a, a nest egg large enough to fuel of the lifestyle that you envision for the rest of your life. And, and that's the freedom point. 
And so you might be saying, well, how do you figure that out? Well, you take whatever income for you would feel like total liberty, right? So for some people, that's $50,000, $100,000, dollars whatever the number is for you, what is that amount of cash that you would you would basically feel totally free to, to live the life that you want? And then simply multiply that number conservatively by 33, a little bit more liberally by, by, by 25. And what that basically will get you to is a nest egg that will generate that kind of income. Uh, 33 refers to a 3% withdrawal rate and 25 relates to a, a 4% withdrawal rate, which you probably heard the 4% rule. 3% is just a bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. And when you reach the point where your company is the, you know, after-tax proceeds of, of, of selling your company would equate to enough money to f- basically fund whatever it is that you want to go do for the rest of your life. I think it's worth asking the question, am I willing to trade that freedom for the next tranche of growth? I'm not saying that the wrong answer is to, f- to say, no, I'm going to keep my chips on the table and, 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 and go for the next. But I think it is worth doing that intentionally with forethought and saying, I want to make that decision with wide open eyes because again, for what a lot of business owners have done in particular, unfortunately coming into 2020 is they were well past the freedom point. And, and they said effectively, they were like the, the, the poker player at Las Vegas where they put all their chips in the, on the, in the table, they bet and they had 80% of their net worth tied in their business. They were all in, you know, they didn't consider selling. And then of course the pandemic hits and their business may be worth a fraction of what it was before uh, 2020. So I, look, I, I don't for a second wish upon the world another pandemic for that's right. the last thing I wish. But I do want when people crest the freedom point for you to think about, do I want to continue to bet all those chips and, and if not, then you've got options. You know, you could sell some of your company, you could sell all of it, um, you know, et cetera. But I think it's just at least worth asking the question. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's a good, good litmus test. And when, when people do then begin to sell their business, which you, you work with many of those thousands of them, what are some of those one or two common mistakes that you often see? Oh man, there's, I mean, the book is, is really kind of what I tried to do with the book is to sort of point out the dozens and dozens of mistakes that people make. Uh, you know, you got one shot to get this right. It's like, do you remember Sully, the guy who, who, who lands the plane on the Hudson River? Like, sure. All those years ago, whatever, you know, I think about him all the time because yet you have sort of one shot to grease the landing. Uh, there's no do over. There's no, you know, well, why do we only that? have one shot? Why, why is that? <laughs> well, it's because, you know, you build a company and, and you will likely in many cases, not build another company of value in your lifetime. Some okay. will build I more than one, but yeah. for many, it's just the one shot. And so, you know, we want to make sure we don't make a mistake that is, that is, uh, that is the death knell. So look, there's a bunch. So one of them would be to answer the question, what do you want for your company? Uh, that is a classic question that a, a, a savvy buyer uh, will ask you. They'll say, look, you know, like you built this great business, you know, like, what do you want for it? And it sounds very casual when asked. And oftentimes it feels like, Hey, you know, this is like a, this is a fair question. Like, you know, what do you want for it? It's like, you're selling a house, you're selling a car. Like, yeah, what do you want for it? And the problem with answering that question is that the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, meaning you don't know what that company is worth to somebody else. Stephanie Breedlove's business was a $9 million company. 
had she answered that question, what do you want for it? You know, you might say, well, you know, one time's revenue would be great. Well, had she answered that way, she would have left literally 500% of her, like she got 500% more than one time's revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, so the answer to the question, I think, is not providing an answer to it or response to it is just say, look, I'm, I'm a reasonable guy or I'm a reasonable gal. Uh, I'm happy to entertain any reasonable offer and leave it at that. Because, uh, because the, the real mentality is, was it, what is it worth to you? Right? Exactly. Yeah. For care.com and Breedlove's case, it was worth the truckload, right? right? They had 7 million subscribers. If they could cross sell 1%, it was 70,000 customers. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't pay that just because they picked that number out of the air. They, they could justify no. that number. For them, that number made sense. Exactly. And so you don't know what the strategic assets are of the acquirer, what model they're using, what spreadsheets they've created. So the last thing you want to do is prejudice their response to that question with your own answer. Uh, equally, just because you need a million dollars to retire or $3 million to hit your freedom point doesn't mean your company's worth that, by the way. Yeah. The inverse is also true, right? Like what you need has no bearing on the value of your company. Uh, so let's not confuse that. But right. essentially, you don't want to answer that question. And oftentimes, you know, an M&A professional knows enough, like a business broker, someone who sells your company for you knows enough not to answer that question. Right. But oftentimes, the buyer will wait till the M&A professional kind of excuses himself from lunch and goes to the bathroom. <laughs> and then when they're not in earshot, <laughs> they'll say, you know, it's been great to get to know you. Like, like what do you, like, what are you thinking? What, what do you want for the company? You know, like they'll do it when they know that there's not a professional at the table, yeah. you know, who knows better than to answer. The negotiation starts before the negotiation starts and, and they're looking to anchor that number in your head and work against you then at that point. Yeah. So if, if I was summarizing, you know, what I take away from the book and everything that I've learned from you, you know, the, the key things are, you know, building this business that isn't too focused on one, one customer. You say, you know, no more than 15% should be going to one client. It's, it's fine tuning or standardizing that offering so that it's repeatable. Then the big thing that we talked about a lot, which is I can't be the business because then there's no value if I'm removed from the business and nobody's going to buy that. Um, and then, you know, there's an approach, obviously, to selling. And you cover that in the book as well as the next book that's coming that we'll talk about in a moment. But th those are kind of my key things that I look at is that's how I build a company that can thrive without me and that is sellable. Is that fair? That's exactly right. It, 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 the one thing that I think a lot of people listening to your summary might be saying is, it, I know it can't be dependent on me, but I just don't know what the first step is or how to kind of get past the fact that I'm still so deeply entwined in my companies, entrenched in my business. And I think the, the challenge, again, we're recording this the brand new year, which is a great time to kind of reevaluate everything. I, I just ask you to think about niching down to the point where you can you can discover a a segment of the marketplace that has a homogeneous need for one thing that you offer and and the more discipline you have around niching down to one specific type of person i think that the more robust a solution you can develop for that one type of customer and then you can start to hire employees to deliver that because employees, unlike entrepreneurs, thrive on repetition, right? We all thrive as entrepreneurs and founders on the new, new thing, right? The variety, the diversity, what employees thrive on is, is mastering one thing. And so by niching down, coming up with one thing, 
you know, payroll service for nannies as an example, you can then hire employees. And that's when you start to create the flywheel of allowing your business to thrive without you. But it all starts with the discipline to kind of niche down to one segment, one solution. Love that. Thanks for summarizing that. That's beautifully said. Um, so tell me about the, the new book, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. I was just listening to the episode. If I understand right, some of it is, is a collection of all of these stories that you've listened to and asked people about. Is that right? Yeah, I've been, I've been recording Built to Sell Radio podcast since 2015. Every week I interview an entrepreneur who's recently sold their company and I ask them, what are the secrets? And what I've learned is that there is a group within that universe of people I've, I've spoken to who punch well above their weight, who get you know, like, like Breedlove, right. multiples of what they should get by any sort of objective measure. And what I've learned is that a lot of it comes down to the dance, the art of, of negotiating, of packaging, of marketing and preparing your business. You know, business valuators are keen on, on, on using sort of rules of thumb and saying, well, your business is worth, you know, $3.2657 million, whatever. And they're very <laughs> precise about it. But the reality is that there are some entrepreneurs that achieve multiples, you know, double, triple the industry average. And it's not uh, that their business is often that much better. It's that they play the dance. They have the dance that much more naturally. And so I try to, in the book, uh, tease out what are, I think, the transferable lessons from all of the 300 guests, in particular the ones that have had an outlandishly good exit, and, and put together a bit of a prescription for others to follow so that we can learn from some of these great entrepreneurs that have, have had just sort of uh, amazing exits. Because what, what you're telling me is they're, they're not just unicorns. There are things that we can actually learn that can help me get the most from my business when I'm ready to sell. That's exactly right, Henry. I mean, again, a lot of people have heard the industry multiple. Like, they, you know, they go to an industry event or they, you know, Google their their industry and they say, oh, you know, companies in my industry trade at, you know, three times SDE, seller's discretionary earnings, or mm -hmm. one times revenue. And they get that kind of myopically sort of kind of hang on to that number as though they are preordained to get that when they go to sell their company. And the reality is that in some cases, businesses trade at a fraction of the industry multiple. And then again, in other cases, they trade at a multiple of it. Right. And, and a lot of that comes down to how well you play the game. And so the idea behind the book is, is to basically give you a cheat sheet on, on successfully maneuvering the game, playing the game. And it's, it's kind of the, you know, we're thinking of it a little bit like a trilogy, you know, built to sell was about how do you build a business that you could sell the automatic yeah. customer about how do you accelerate the value? And then this one is really more, can you build some value? How do you, how do you harvest that? How do you get something for it? Yeah. love it. Looking forward to it. I mean, do, do you think one of those components, I've always thought about this, that, that some of it is the timing of when you go to market or when you seek a buyer. I mean, some of that is obvious, right? For example, I've, you know, if I go to try to sell a restaurant right now, it's going to be a challenge, right? I'm actually trying to do that right now. Yeah. But so, yeah. so some of that has to come into play as you were gathering all of these stories and finding those common denominators. Absolutely right. I mean, 
a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this will be thinking, oh, maybe I'll sell in the next three, four, five years, maybe when I've launched that new product, built that new location, grow to this mm. threshold or whatever. And what I would just coach you on or have, ask you to consider uh, is number one, the best time to sell your company is when someone's buying it. Mm. Uh, and so what that means is that when you get an offer, uh, that means you've got leverage. When you're out there pitching your company, you're a bit on your back foot in the sense that you are obviously looking to sell your business and acquirers are going to say, well, why do you want to sell? And so you've got to sort of deal with that obstacle. Whereas if you get approached, it's a great opportunity to, to negotiate from a position of strength. The second thing I would say, and this is much more practical, is that right now we are in a very low interest rate environment. You know, it's for a lot of us, like we can remember, you know, back in the early 90s when, you know, mortgage rates were 12, 13, 14%. Today, money is virtually free. Now, why does that matter to you as an entrepreneur? It matters because when an acquirer goes to buy your business, in particular, individual investors buying very small companies or uh, uh, private equity companies buying smallish companies, they borrow a lot of money to do that. Yeah. And the lower the interest rate is that they borrow for, the the the, the basically the more that they can borrow, the more value they can pay for your company. So even though a lot of businesses have struggled through 2020, given COVID and, and restrictions and so forth, the the countermeasure, the counterbalance to that is that that money is virtually free right now. And so we're seeing a lot of private equity companies, a lot of individual investors trying to buy businesses right now because again, they can lock in these just abnormally low interest rates. And therefore it's a, it's actually a really interesting time to sell. So, yeah. Yeah. No, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Thanks for sharing that and those insights. I think what it, what it goes to show, what it goes to prove is that you have to build a business ideally as quickly as possible. And even from the start, if possible, that is built to sell, that is ready to be sold when that opportunity presents itself. Well said. And again, it gives you all the cards. You don't have to sell, but That's you've right. got all the sort of options open to you at that point. Because even if you don't sell, it's what gives you that freedom, those things that you described that your business gives you today. And that's why we got into this to begin with. Mm -hmm. All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, I've got a time crunch here and I appreciate you, you staying with me here. Uh, I, I always ask for what's one thing you want us to take away, but I think the way that you've summarized it is perfect. And, and if I can kind of say it back to you and then you add to it, it's about that niching down, that focus. This is something I always talk about, even as people are starting their business. I always find that people have these really broad definitions of what they're going to do. And even in launching, we need to focus and niche down. But it's by niching down that then we can have other people that work on our teams to execute on that. That also what we didn't touch on is that we also need the system so that we can do that repeatedly and, and at a high level of consistency. And that's how we get a business that's ready to sell. Then there's a bunch of techniques that we only got a chance to touch on, on how to get it sold. But that's what I'm taking away from the conversation that we had, John. Well said. Agreed. Where do you want us to go online to find out more? I would go to builttosell.com and you can just opt in and like provide your email address. There's a bunch of places you can opt in. And once you opt in, you'll get a, a new episode of Built to Sell Radio every week. And it's free. And it's just an entrepreneur who has sold their business. And unlike a lot of shows, I, I don't focus on, you know, how do you start a business, grow a business, market a business, blah, blah, blah. It's really focused on the very final chapter. How do you 
ultimately harvest what you built. So if that's something that you're kind of curious about, uh, I just go to builttosell.com and opt in there. Wonderful. John, thanks for taking the time to be with me today, sharing all these insights and knowledge. Uh, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks, Henry. It's great to be with you. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest again today was John Warrillow. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. You can also just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 772-837-5700 to receive more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.